And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. On this rotating globe, wherever you are, all over the planet, in 190-some countries, listening to us on the other side of midnight. Welcome, one. Welcome, all. Well, tonight we're going to embark on another voyage into the unknown. The unknown being why, when there's all kinds of circumstantial evidence, that there is an extraordinary glass dome, an ancient, ancient, tattered, battered, eroded, almost in some places, um, uh, doily-like, lace-like remnants of an extraordinary uh, construction over this 30-mile-wide crater on Mars. And all of the evidence is coming in from the only source we have, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Why does NASA continue to remain totally, totally silent? And there's another mystery. You heard that the helicopter now might fly on Monday. We're going to get into both of those things, but before we do that, let me start at the top of the news. Um, Prince Philip was uh, laid to rest today. They had his, his funeral, which went several hours. That's item number one in Radio with Pictures. In my news items tonight, the reason I'm making a kind of a deal uh, about Prince Philip, someone said to me, what the heck does Prince Philip have to do with space? Which, of course, illustrates how narrow their perspective is because this program covers a lot more than space. And it is my firm conviction, it has been for decades, that what we're doing, what we're finding in space is directly applicable to life here on Earth And vice versa. There is an interplay of politics and egos and agendas and duplicity and all the usual human frailties involving all of these realms. So why am I kind of focusing on Prince Philip? Well, first of all, he represented, as I said last week, uh, dying at the age of 99, just shy of 100 years, a century He represents a link between what's going on at present and what went on many, 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 many decades ago. He he was the sole surviving uh, representative of an era which has passed. And many of us will say, you know, good riddance. The other reason is that representing, as he did, almost the patriarch of the royal family, the you know, the royal family of the head of the British Empire, what used to be, you know, ruling planet Earth, um, the city of London, all the economics associated with central banks and all of that huge Michigas. He also had this singular intriguing interest in UFOs. And the reason I bring that up is because everyone when they look at various leaders, various political leaders or religious or cultural, whatever, we always seem to imbue these people with some kind of, uh, I won't say superhuman, but some extraordinary apart from humanity power to do things, to make change, to influence public opinion, to direct the stream of history in ways that, frankly, I don't think they have. I mean, I've been watching very closely. I mean, there's a lot of people in this audience who are followers, were and still are, of uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump had, as the chief executive of the United States of America, as he exemplified in so many different directions, this extraordinary power of the executive written into the Constitution. I mean, he he made some of these really outrageous claims that presidents can do anything. No, they can't do anything, but they can sure do a hell of a lot. The one thing Donald Trump did not do, even though it was served up to him on a silver platter, which would have immortalized in an extraordinarily positive way his name in history, And is there anything more important to Donald Trump than his name, his reputation, his public persona, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, uh, That was the rhetorical question. We served up to him through a back channel, so I know he got it and he was able to look at it. 
the literal foundations for carving out his name in 50-foot high Hollywood sign type lights. All he had to do as the president of the United States was call up his head of NASA and order him, because the head of NASA serves at the pleasure of the president in the executive branch, order him to get to the White House in 30 minutes with the photographs of all the stuff on the moon and Mars that NASA has been cataloging for the last half century, and he never did it. He never discussed in practical three-dimensional terms the whole extraordinarily confusing subject of UFOs. In fact, he redacted certain portions of the CIA files on the assassination of John Kennedy, which tells me, which again harkens back to Prince Philip, regardless of the apparent power of either kings or queens or princes or presidents, obviously are limits. Something is limiting the exercise of this power and directing it in certain directions, certain channels, and misdirecting it from others. I mean, Trump had an extraordinary, within his grasp, opportunity to make history like no president or no king or prince in the last several thousand years has made history, and he did not take the opportunity. And the question must be raised, why not? Which is why I have item number one, Prince Philip's funeral. Because with the death of Prince Philip and the death of an era, maybe we are transitioning into another time where whatever forces there are behind the princes and kings of planet Earth, maybe their agenda is changing, which takes us to item number two. Remember, you go to the other side of midnight.com for those of you who are new to the program. And you click on um, tonight's banner, which says very uh, rather, um, shall we say, mysteriously, why is NASA still hiding Percy's astonishing discovery of an ancient Jezero glass dome with our imaging team for um, Saturday, April 17th. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page tonight. And under that banner, you will find fast links. Click on my items. That takes you to my part of radio with pictures. Uh, Item number two, right under the Prince Philip story, the Navy is releasing more video. And not only is the Navy doing this, but the Pentagon is confirming that this is official night vision U.S. Navy video of, you guessed it, more UFOs. Remember, in a few months, toward the end, I believe, of June now, we are supposed to receive a report from the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has been reviewing as part of the uh, NDAA that was signed into law uh, many, many months ago by by President Trump, we're supposed to receive a briefing, a public briefing, on the status of the uh, UAP, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon that has been, you know, chasing the um, Roosevelt and the Nimitz and playing cat and mouse with F-18s, and now we have another video. This one is really intriguing, and this was on Fox News, which I find very interesting given who the audience for Fox News is. It's literally night vision of the skies over New York showing three tetrahedral pyramidal UFOs flying in formation and They're kind of phasing in and out. Uh, If you freeze frame the video, you'll see really amazing things. Now, in in one phase, they look like equilateral triangles, which, of course, are two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional tetrahedrons. In another phase, you know, a few frames later in the video, they phase to a solid, obviously three-dimensional tetrahedron floating in the sky. Why is this important? Because, I mean, come on, folks. If UFOs are trying at some level to illustrate the background physics of the reality in which we inhabit, 
the physics of how they fly, the physics of how they cross interstellar distances that are unimaginable to, excuse me, most terrestrial minds, then what better form than to show up as tetrahedrons, which is supposed to get people intrigued with, well, how do tetrahedrons, you know, get involved in all of this? And for those of you who've been following our work for many, many decades, you know exactly what the answer is. Isn't it interesting that the latest, again, Pentagon-confirmed unidentified aerial phenomenon, and the unidentified is said definitely tongue-in-cheek, should take the form not of saucers, not of little glowing lights, but of full-blown three-dimensional pyramids. Not just any pyramids, but tetrahedral pyramids. And as Church Lady would say on Saturday Night Live, isn't that special? So, moving on. Um, This is a very important week. A whole bunch of anniversaries kind of collided this week. It's the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first modern human flight around the Earth in uh, in his spacecraft. And it is also the 40th anniversary, again, within a day or two, of the launch of the first space shuttle from Cape Canaveral. And I was there. I was a uh, consultant to, at that time, CNN. And I wound up doing uh, stand-up uh, stuff on air with my friend and mentor, Kevin Sanders, who was the CNN science editor, um, on the first flight of Columbia. And NASA's put out, by the way, they fixed NASA television. Last weekend, they finally, after two months of bizarreness and weirdness and strangeness and you know other, other things in this, they finally fixed NASA TV. So if you go to the NASA um, uh, menu on your satellite or cable channel, and you get NASA TV, what you see is titles of various programs actually fits now various programs. It's all back in sync. Well, they're running this really amazing documentary, which was very well done, very nicely produced, lots of amazing videos, some of which I'd never seen, um, on the 40 years of the space shuttle program, starting with the launch of the uh, first space shuttle uh, which was on April, I think it was April 11th, um, which was last Sunday. But as you know, we did not have a program live last Sunday because we had weird, weird, weird computer problems. Anyway, um, that anniversary, which marks the beginning of the democratization of space, is very important for a whole bunch of reasons, which takes us to item number four. Because this is a story that comes out of uh, uh, Moscow, very elegant analysis of what's happened to the Russian space program in comparison to the U.S. space program. And what's really intriguing is that while the Russian program has remained centralized with a central bureau of space flight, et cetera, Roscosmos, you know, which runs everything, um, the U.S. program is has divided in very interesting and elegant ways. We have the official U.S. program, NASA, and in particular, right now we're talking about the unmanned Perseverance rover and some of the amazing things that you're going to be seeing tonight that confirm again they've made the most extraordinary discovery and they're not talking about it. I mean, there's so many different lines of evidence as to what they found and they're not saying a word not a peep, not a whisper. In fact, normally during these missions, uh, I hang out on, you know, like a lurker on some of these inside blogs and chat rooms and whatever that, you know, NASA people love to talk like everybody else loves to talk. And so since they can't say anything publicly, they go to these chat rooms and they leak stuff behind the scenes procedures. They leak really interesting images. They leak techniques for how to make the images better. There's all kinds of leaking that goes on behind the scenes during all normal NASA missions. The Perseverance mission is not normal because there literally are no leaks. Nothing has been coming out of JPL as to what really happened with Ingenuity, why it was delayed again and again and again. 
And I'm not too certain about Monday. You know, something could come up. We'll get into that when we get into the rest of the program this morning. But there's been no leaks, which in and of itself is really bizarre because people love to talk. And in this case, nobody's talking, which, again, raises my conspiracy uh, spidey sense that says they're not talking because they've been told not to talk and the consequences of talking are not going to be pretty, and so nobody is talking, which means they're hiding something. And, of course, we know what they're hiding. They're hiding the discovery of this extraordinary ancient glass dome over a crater in the northern hemisphere just down from the tip of Sirtis Major, the oldest known feature ever seen on Mars. It was seen by Cassini back in the uh, late 1600s. So this has been the feature that kind of represented the planet Mars in lore and art and fiction and in astronomical circles. Well, in this unique place, at the edge of this unique feature, featured as Mars down through history of astronomy, nobody's talking about what they have found. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's uh, we'll get into that during the course of the morning. But this item number four, this view of what the Russians are doing versus what the U.S. is doing, what the U.S. is doing is what every free society has to do, which is to release the constraints so that no one agency controls all information. The only reason tonight that we don't know what's really on Mars or on the moon or anywhere else is because it's all been funneled through one government agency, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, founded by President Eisenhower, a general as a simulcrum, as a kind of um, um, digital vaporware uh, charade of a civilian space agency when actually anything really, really important that NASA discovered relating to who and what's out there, it's locked up in national security. And there's no clearer example than the space agency that's supposed to go and find life out there. That's what every American thinks NASA is supposed to be doing is finding evidence of life. They say it in all their ads. They say it in all their TV programs. They say it constantly when they do interviews. But it's, as I said in the monuments, you know, jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, but never jam today. They've got a live one. They've got an amazing discovery right in front of them. And the only way we know that they're actually taking it seriously is they're taking zillions of pictures of things that have never been done before in any previous NASA mission, either on the moon or on Mars, on the surface. Which moves us from item number four, which is the contrast between a top-down control government program to explore space, And this guy, Elon Musk, who has Mars set in his sights, who is building a rocket and a spacecraft to go on the rocket, which is going to take someday an awful lot of people to the planet Mars, who obviously will not be able to be controlled. They will talk. They will leak. They will use their iPhones. They will use their satellite links. They will. There's no way at that point that what's up there can be kept secret. So isn't it interesting that out of the three main competitors as part of Project Artemis, we're now on item number five, NASA threw a cat among the pigeons yesterday by picking Elon Musk and SpaceX to build the lander that will bring humans back to the moon, onto the surface, and back to Earth, like the lunar module, except much, 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 much grander. Because, of course, by picking for the contract to land Artemis astronauts on the moon, by picking Musk, what NASA has done is to pick, basically, Musk Starship, which, by the way, has been regularly blowing up in Texas as they've been trying to land this big sucker. They had almost success the last time, except after the landing, uh, it blew up because of a methane leak. Well, they're going to try again, I think, in a couple of weeks to do uh, another flight test. They've leaped from Starship number 11. These are 
you know, kind of numbers for test modules, test spaceships, test test articles, they call them, to 15. And Musk is saying that there have been so many improvements now that the next one, number 15, is going to successfully fly up, hover, and then fly back down and land on the pad where it left. Starship number 20 is supposed to be the first Starship mission into orbit, Earth orbit, unmanned, but up into orbit, around the Earth several times, then back down, landing tail first on the pad in Texas. July 1st, two or three days before, and things slip, you know, with Musk. So it probably is going to slip to July 4th, which from that classic line, Independence Day, is not just our independence, it's our independence to stay alive. Because space, as you know, in my view of history, is the only way the human race is going to stay alive and thrive, fan and flourish, and do all the things that humans should be doing that we're not doing now because we're confined to one tiny speck of dust and we're fighting over the specks. We need to lift our sights. We need a better vision. We need NASA or someone to admit somebody out there before us built amazing things on the moon and even more amazing things on Mars. And if nobody else is going to tell the American people and the world the truth, is it possible that Elon Musk is going to be the guy why did they pick him? Remember, Bezos, who I think has more money than Musk, and a newspaper to boot, and Amazon, and a whole bunch of other things, I really, really, really wanted to get this contract, not because of the money, but because of the, the mission. He didn't get the contract. He didn't get the, you know, the sword on the shoulder, the knighthood of being the guy who leads humanity toward the stars. That's a guy named Elon Musk, who in Werner von Braun's one novel is the namesake of the leader of the Martian colony in von Braun's novelization of his Mars project. Can you make this stuff? Or maybe somebody is. Who knows? Item number six. Um, as I said at the top of the show, NASA is going to try again, they're telling us, uh, Monday. And so if you want to know what the schedule is, it's going to be on NASA television, it's going to be on YouTube, it's going to be on various apps, on Twitter. There's going to be a full court press of flying little ingenuity for the first time on Mars. What has been the reason for the delay? Well, if you look at item number seven, I think this is what it is. Number seven is a comparative shot I put together. <clears throat> the image on the left is a shot from one of our U-2 missions at about 70, 73,000 feet above the planet. <clears throat> the image on the right is from Perseverance, looking toward the west. The brightness at the top of the uh, frame is the setting sun. Notice the sky is blue. Notice the haze in front of the distant crater, Rim of Jezero, is blue. Notice that the blue seems to match the blue of the Earth's atmosphere, seen from 70,000 feet, except above the band of blue, which is the breathable air you and I are enjoying right now, is black. The blackness of the lack of atmosphere above 70,000 feet. Now, we're told over and over and over and over again that the Martian atmosphere that NASA and JPL and all their myriad scientists and engineers have been working with ever since the first Mariner for flyby back in 1965, that the Martian atmosphere at the surface is so super thin, it's one one thousandth of the atmosphere we're currently breathing. And thereby hangs a tail. Because if, when they were doing the run-up tests for ingenuity, if, in fact, all of their modeling, all their vacuum tank tests, all their, you know, they put together like 5,000 little computer fans to 
represent the breezes that would blow at 100,000 feet that might, you know, move the helicopter off kilter when it's spinning on its own autonomous computer-controlled flight plan, monitoring its motions 500 times per second. So there's a feedback loop, and it corrects for any, you know, miscalculations or puffs of wind. I mean, the puff of wind at 100,000 feet sounds to me absurd. But that's what they have been telling us. Just suppose, I'm just going to throw this out there, and we've got about four minutes till the bottom of the hour. Just suppose that in their run-up tests, after they dropped little ingenuity on the landscape and then backed away to a safe distance and sent it commands to turn the rotors first at 50 RPM, and then because the atmosphere is ostensibly so thin, they have to spin those four-foot rotors at almost 3,000 RPM to produce enough lift under the Mars gravity of one-third that of Earth um, to basically have it hover and fly. Suppose during the rapids told the computer onboard Perseverance saw something it didn't like and it cut short the test. Suppose what it did not like was the fact that it was measuring air resistance air resistance that was much denser than the published models of the Martian atmosphere have been for over 50 years, since 1965. I mean, that would be a showstopper because the flight dynamics of a helicopter hovering at 100,000 feet over the Earth are totally, totally different than one hovering at 1,000 feet, you know, down in the soup, down in the atmosphere that we're breathing by a factor of a thousand. And just weirdly, they've been saying now that they fixed the software problem that caused the cessation of the test. They uploaded a totally new flight package to the Ingenuity computer, and they've now conducted a fast rotor spin up to where they're saying that they had predictable, reliable, expected results. And so they've now commissioned this autonomous flight to begin sometime in the wee hours at 3.30 a.m. Monday morning. 3.30 a.m. Why does that sound familiar? Oh, I know why. Because 3.30 a.m. is, of course, 3.3. You don't suspect that maybe NASA's doing all of this on a ritual calendar or clock that in fact it is it is constrained again like Prince Philip and Donald Trump and everyone at NASA constrained to a larger pressure, a larger force, a larger power, a larger set of instructions that nothing can be leaked and nothing can be changed until someone decides. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core 
and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not deposited money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Netta, and Kintia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Saturday night, April 17th, 2021, on the eve of, well, history. One way or another, we're going to be experiencing over the next few days, and maybe the next week, or maybe the next month, history. History on another world. History made, if not by NASA, remember, the Chinese are still orbiting the planet Mars. A place where, you know, it ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Okay, you all know that I could listen to this forever because it's so evocative of so many things, both in my own past when I first heard it, which was driving in pre-dawn darkness across the panhandle of Florida, having just left Houston with a crew of two men on Apollo 16 walking on the moon. So this one's kind of burned into my memory. And I think 
side of midnight. Yes, a long, long time, but the time may be growing shorter. Okay, all the gang is here. Uh, Ron Gerbron is here, and Andrew Curry, and Bob Harrison, and Keith Morgan, and Kinthea, and Tim Saunders. Am I, am, am I missing anyone? If you're, if, if you're missing, speak up. No one's missing. Okay. All right, who wants to jump in and talk about ingenuity and the atmosphere of Mars and the flight of history commencing in about, what, 36 hours from now, give or take? Well, I have, uh, this is Timothy, I have one or two observations, Richard. I am speaking to you from early morning Turkey, and I'm in a bit of an echoey environment, so I apologize <laughs> to everybody. You sound like you're in the cathedral of, of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Hagia uh, Sophia. Or maybe in the quite... Jezero Dome. See, Tim has actually secretly gone there to do the blueprint, so he's speaking to us from the dome. It's echoing very nicely. It's, it's all part of the immersion tactics I use. To, you know, when I get involved in a project, I really want to experience it. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the... the, the thing that pops out of my mind or pops out of, into my mind straight away when I look at the Ingenuity helicopter is the little tiny solar panel, pathetic little thing that looks like it's sort of screwed on top uh, of these, you know, whirling high-speed rotor blades. Now, presumably there's going to be some vibration. I mean, you know, it will be beautifully engineered, I'm sure. But if you have two uh, rotor blades, okay, counter-rotating, they will create some form of vibration. And above you have this sort of like, uh, excuse me, but pathetic looking little solar panel array screwed on top, which is also covered in dust, which is also blocking the sun. First of all, it doesn't really look big enough for the job because if this, these rotor blades are spinning at you know high speed, and even if it's for only uh, one and a half minutes or whatever the, the predicted flight is, or you know, even 30-second flights or whatever that hops, it doesn't look man enough to, for the job for me. Uh, and secondly, as I say, it, it's, you know, it, it looks like it's beautifully engineered. It's been sent on the other side of our solar system, but it just looks very crude. What do you think? Um. Well, the size of the solar panel has bothered me from the beginning because you're almost twice as far away from the sun. The amount of solar energy goes down by the inverse square law, which means you're getting only one quarter as much solar energy per square inch or square foot or square meter as you do on Earth. Solar cells efficiencies are, you know, 25, 30 percent max. Um, you let the little things sit there 
for an entire day soaking up energy so you can power the cameras, the radios, the motors to spin the uh, props, those four-foot props, which is a lot. It's a lot of energy. I think it's 250 watts to run them, and they're talking now maximum 90 seconds of um, of flight time, probably conservatively maybe 30 seconds. It it just it it does the word kludge come to anybody else's mind except me and Tim? I need to look up and see what that means. What is that in English? <laughs> it means patched together from miscellaneous parts. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So unless they have a secret power source, which of course, if we're dealing with a secret space agency, which has access to hyperdimensional physics, et cetera, et cetera, package in that little, you know, four pound container, a power source that wouldn't need the sun at all, this whole thing would be like a like a, a Potemkin village or a false front western town and the solar panel is an excuse for not doing more publicly than once per day. But if it has a really onboard power source, and I don't mean nuclear, I'm talking torsion field physics here, then again, remember my model that weeks ago I said that Ingenuity's real mission is to scout for whatever perseverance was landed in Jezero Crater to find and you're not going to do that with 90-second sorties, but you could do it if it's really independent, and this whole thing is a cover story to prevent the people, the public, the taxpayer, the world from knowing what they're really looking for at Jezero. Mm-hmm. The other thing which I think is, is worthy of note, I mean, is, is that the uh, perseverance itself may not have had the space to you know, contain a larger solar array, uh, but I don't really believe that because I mean, equally, that solar array could have been circular or square, and it could have been many times more, um, more square, you know, more area for the for virtually the same weight. The solar panels themselves don't weigh very much at all. Uh, I know it must be very weight sensitive, but let's just say you have three times more area of solar panels, then surely that's got to be a good trade-off. But I mean, you know, recently I was designing a um, a floating helipad, believe it or not, for a particular client. And it was a conceptual study and also a sort of a feasibility and also cost estimation process. Now they wanted to land um, an AW139, which is a pretty big helicopter on this structure. And there were a lot of rules involved and there were a lot of um, safety mechanisms, firefighting and so on and so on. Um, but also they wanted to you know, reduce the amount of uh, generator runtime uh, on this structure. So, of course, you know, what can you do? You can do wave energy, but it doesn't really work. You can do wind energy. It doesn't really work with a helicopter landing in the vicinity. So it basically comes down to solar. So, of course... I maximize the amount of solar panels I could use, but still it comes way short of anything I, I need uh, to make it a, a self-sufficient entity. And, you know, I'm talking something with like a 25 meter, so what's that, you know, 75, 80 foot wide, or 80 foot square, uh, 80 by 80, that is, uh, structure. So for me, solar panels is key. The, the area of solar panels is absolutely key to the mission if that is indeed what they're for. Have you ever heard the term window dressing? Yes. Remember how we were talking a couple of weeks ago, how just the, the design, I mean, you're, you're a designer, you're an elegant designer. The design Thank itself you. does not bespeak of the future. I mean, if, if Musk were designing this, it would be totally different. I mean, look at his space trap, look at his spacesuits, look at his cars, look at his, his, his uh, you know, boring. Everything Musk does is not only functionally, engineeringly brilliant, it also looks absolutely out of this world. It's, it's sexy, it's inviting, it's a conversation that Andrew and I've had. It, it makes you want to know more, want to participate, to be exactly. part of the story this little helicopter, which frankly is uh, that cartoon we have at the top of the uh, homepage, kind of says it. 
it's like it's like a fish out of water. It just there's something about it that's bothered me from the beginning, and it is because it it does not it's not elegant. That's the word I'm well, missing. Well, the other thing is that the the rows of blades are quite sexy looking. I think yes, yeah, they, they are. are. They're the sexiest they're thing on. engineered. Yeah, and also the legs, the landing legs. Those are probably the two most sexy looking things <laughs> on the on on the thing itself. But the why not make the box of electronics a teardrop? Why not oh, make it yeah. so it was elegant? It's a box covered with mylar. Yeah, I mean th- those are good questions. But I mean, again, so, you know, then it would have looked like a finished product instead of a an experiment. I think they wanted it to look like a garage level experiment. Well, they keep saying over and over again, and sorry, Tim, we keep interrupting, but they keep saying over and over again, it has no utility, it has no scientific instruments. Well, that's NASA lying, and I'll tell you exactly why they're lying. Because Perseverance has 19 or 20 or 20, I forget the number, of cameras, which are all classified as scientific instruments. Ingenuity carries two cameras, a black and white camera, which is going to be part of its terrain navigation, and a color camera, incredibly high resolution, HD, etc., looking slant-wise down to photograph the landscape and Percy and all that. And they're not classifying the cameras and ingenuity as scientific experiments because I think it's all propaganda. They don't want anyone to think this little thing will have any utility other than a quote demo. Can we talk one, about the cameras real po- quick? Yeah, sure. I'd like to talk about the cameras. Yeah, I worked for ABC News 30 years. All I did was white balance, black balance cameras and fix them to component level. When you white balance a camera in 6500 Kelvin, which is daylight on this planet, and then you send that to another planet or you send it to a disco with different colored lights, the lighting is going to look different than what you balanced it in. And they're not going to put automatic white balancing on cameras when they want to see the true color of another planet based on what they set in 6500 Kelvin on this planet. All right. So why do you see a blue sky when you get there? Because it has a blue sky. <laughs> we were told that this planet, Mars has an atmosphere and we were told that it had rivers and lakes 450,000 years ago, and you didn't need a spacesuit 450,000 years ago, according to these tablets that are six to 7,000 years old. So NASA is telling us BS about the color of that planet. It is not red, the sky's not red, and it's not reversed that of the Earth. When the sun goes down, it turns blue. It's blue all the time. So I wanna know why they're telling us a lie about the color of the sky. Anybody got an answer? I was to that? gonna say, anybody wanna pick okay. that up? Yeah. Because they don't want it inviting. They don't want the old traditions of Barsoom ah. and all the old ancient not ancient all the old scientific uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> sci fi ideas to Well root. some of them are truly, truly ancient, Andrew. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. But, but what I mean is that they don't want those those beautiful ideas that, that romance of space travel and of discovery to take root in people. We heard Holger last week say Oh, in Germany, you know, it's not really encouraged because, you know, the old rockets and the uh, like, Nazis and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they they are discouraging it. They are making you go, ah, whatever. So this little funny little dragonfly barely looks boring. But, you know, on that topic, guys, remember Rosetta's lander, the fillet lander, wasn't the most, you know, beautiful looking thing either. Maybe these space agents, that was from ESSA, right? But maybe yes. these space agencies, they, maybe they don't have any imagination. I mean, Musk is, is a marketeering guy. He's going to make it flashy and sexy because he wants to sell it. And maybe he's – maybe this is a dry run before they send in the real horses like Elon Musk to really carry the chariot. Well, the fact that they picked him you know, as the Casablanca line out of all the gin joints because there were screams through the space community of horror that they picked Musk. Why is – why is Musk the guy they love to hate? Because he's the only one really doing anything. Is that why they love to hate him? But I'm so glad because, remember, I predicted on this show weeks and weeks ago that he would be the guy that would get the contract. That means our spaceships going to and from the moon and to and from Mars 
are going to, Andrew, look like spaceships look, should look like. Like the yeah. 1950s, Tom yeah. Corbett, Polaris. Yep. Yeah, well, like the poster. Remember the poster you brought on? Was it one of our earliest Perseverance shows or was it a moon show? But it was a, it was his rocket on the moon, and it was done in literally the Bonstell bon um, style, and it was extraordinary. So, yeah, you're totally right. It's a, it's, they're Cadillacs. Beautiful. Hmm. Gorgeous. Okay, I want to get back to this atmosphere thing because to me, the only way we're going to know what the atmosphere of Mars is is if you somehow can test it. And the only way to test it is to pit engineering against the reality of the environment. And the only way to test that is if we had an accurate count of how many RPM it takes for little ingenuity to lift off. My thinking is the reason that the folks at NASA, JPL, shut everything down for uh, a week is because when they did the spin-up test, they found it almost wanted to lift off not at 25 400 rpm but it like at 500 rpm which of course is the spin of blades of helicopters here on earth and by the way tim in terms of vibration and shaking a coaxial meaning two rotors right on the same axis spinning in opposite directions is much more stable and much more controllable than helicopters we see with the you know the tail fin the tail rotor in the back that's clunky that's the core. No, I, I understand that. It's the same in the marine business as well. You have duoprop and they're far more stable when they're running. But mm. my point is when you change the attitude, when you change the thrust line, for example, then you're pushing those two blades or two, uh, against whatever you're pushing it against, presumably the atmosphere. And therefore, that will in itself cause some some turbulence, and that turbulence transmits into vibration. That, that's the vibration I'm talking about, not just the shaking mm. of a box on, on the surface of Mars. Well, that's why you have a computer. By the way, the computer that's flying in Ingenuity, we're told, is, is state-of-the-art, as opposed to everything else NASA flies, which has decades of pedigree. They literally have put the best computer uh, able to process data at an extraordinary rate uh, compared to anything else that you'd find off on the market. So they're doing controls at 500 cycles per second for feedback. So I think the little thing is going to fly. The question is, will we ever know in what kind of an atmosphere it's flying? Because, again, I go back to picture number seven. You cannot beat those two pictures. One is at 70,000 feet over the Earth. The sky is pitch black. The other is on Mars where the atmosphere is supposed to be thinner than at 100,000 feet and it's brilliantly daylit blue. How can you reconcile those two images? Mm -hmm. I, I know you're making a segue, but I do want to just go in very quickly with one point that you were saying earlier that the RPM, these rotor blades, is something in the region of what is it, 3,000 RPM you were mentioning? No, they say it will lift off at above 2,500. Okay, but it's not the same as on Earth between 450, 500 exactly. RPM like a normal head. Exactly. Okay, so, but the point is that on Earth, the tail rotor blades on Earth, on helicopters, is also usually between two and a half and 3,000 RPM. So it's not rocket science what they're doing. It's just different. Um, you know, it's the main rotors which are spinning faster as mm. opposed to the tail rotors. There are no tail rotors. I have to say one more thing I'm going to throw on the table is if... Again, I'm not NASA scientist, but if I was going to approach this problem, you know, with a view to create a solution at the beginning of this, and I, it is not 100% uh, in the bag what density the atmosphere is on Mars, then I think I would propose, at least in the early conceptual stage, a variable pitch uh, helicopter, a rotor blade with a variable pitch, because it could be to the point where if, if the atmosphere is thicker than they believe it is, and they've made this beautiful carbon fiber uh, rotor blade system, and the pitch is too great for the atmosphere, it may be that it can never spin up to get anything like the RPM they need. Mm. So that could be interesting. I think I read, and there are, there are links in that um, uh, news item to the technical... Uh, briefing documents on ingenuity. I do believe the rotors are variable pitch. 
I haven't had a chance to check, but I do believe I heard that said at one of these very rare press conferences where they have talked about the helicopter. I think okay. that's true. Okay. okay. Let me let me move on because I want to talk about the dome. Because the second mystery that we want to tackle this morning for the next couple hours is why is NASA so incredibly resistant to admit there is a dome? Not only NASA, but NASA acolytes. Um, I approached someone this week uh, rather straightforwardly and challenged them to do a mosaic of the all-sky mass cam images that NASA took, JPL took, of the dome from the inside from Percy suddenly without warning uh, a couple weeks ago. And they've now repeated it. They've done a second full sky mosaic. All I'd asked this individual to do was to put them together. This is someone who does this for a living. Put them together as a mosaic and show us the beautiful whole of the interior of the dome looking up from all these little individual mass cam frames. Something like 200 images. And this person said, A, they can't do it because there's no references, which I find silly because all you do is process the images. The geometry is there, as you're going to see as I go through some of my other images tonight. And bingo, you then fit them together like a, like, 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 like a puzzle. You just fit the geometry. It's hexagonal. <clears throat> you can see it on some of the individual frames. You fit it together. And looking up at the dome from inside, you're toward one side, so it's going to be a little distorted. Well, you can easily take that out in the computer by simply shifting your perspective to the center looking up. And the other thing they said was, well, NASA is simply taking these frames to what they call flat field the cameras, meaning they want a flat reference. And on Earth, what astronomers do uh, before and after their nightly run when they – take digital imagery through telescopes of objects, they take what are called flat field frames, both professionals and amateurs, given that amateurs now have equipment that in most cases is better than professionals have access to, depending upon which institution or which university. And we're coming up to the top of the hour, so let me kind of stop there, because I want to pick up on what we have found on Mars in the way of this extraordinary crystalline dome that should not exist, and why is it that NASA is literally not telling us, not admitting what's there, even though they have stunningly taken now several sets of hundreds of frames, which is time and, more critically, bandwidth to send all this incredible imagery down to Earth. Every frame is, you know, megabits, so... Why are they taking the time to do this when they claim they have no time unless it is super important and it's not just to flat field the cameras? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, 
We really need you. Over and out.